All right, so we're gonna jump into Romans. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, Romans chapter seven, and the texts are all gonna appear on the screen before you. This text is one that is hotly debated and has been for many, many, many years. Many people don't even know there's tremendous controversy surrounding Romans 7, uh, 13 through 25, but there is, and books and books and books and books have been written, okay? So I want to preface the message with that, and I want to read the entirety of our text tonight, which is 7, 13 to 20, and then I want to jump in and get moving. But before we do, let me pray so we can transition from announcements and distractions to the word. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Father, all that we need for life and godliness, you have supplied by your spirit and in your word. Father, help us to pay attention now. Help us to understand. I pray for clarity. I pray that we would um, be led down the right path as there are so many paths to go. Uh, I pray that we would be helped by the word tonight, not further confused. I pray, Father, that you would have your way by your spirit tonight. I pray that you would speak to people where they're at. Give them what they need to hear. Father, you know where every individual is in this room at this time, spiritually, emotionally, physically, psychologically. You know where they're at. You know what they need. Father, I pray that you would visit each person. Meet them where they're at. Give them the help they need. We thank you that you are God and you can speak to each one of us individually and you have a unique relationship with us individually. Pray that you would move and help us now. Illuminate your word in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna start by reading the text and then we will jump in. Paul continuing to argue, uh, is the law the problem or is sin the problem? That's the basic idea here of what he's arguing. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means, or God forbid. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinfully beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin." For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, so there's our text. And here is the basics of what is happening here, okay? So we're gonna go 30,000 feet, then we'll start uh, right on the surface, and then we'll start digging under the surface, okay? So let's start very high. What's happening in Romans 7 here is that the argument thus far has been, is the law the problem or is sin the problem? 
And as Eddie so well preached last night, how many of you were here last week? How many of you were here last week? Yeah, someone, I met with someone on uh, Sunday or Monday who was here on Sunday, and they were like, man, that was like a college level course. Like, that was rough. That was like, boom, it was just waves and waves and waves of, of uh, depth, and it was. But Eddie did a good job clarifying. And I want to pick up, there he is. What's up, Eddie? I just big up to you, and you missed it. <laughs> You're trying to sneak in, you can't get away with that here, bro. Um, so Eddie did such a good, last, good job last week helping us to understand that the law is not the problem. And we could say God's moral law, his 10 commandments, if you will, with the exception of the Sabbath, and we'll get into that when we get into the later chapters of Romans. But for now, let's imagine the moral law of God. It's always wrong to lie. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to kill. It's always wrong to lust. It's always wrong to be manipulative, deceptive, rude, unkind, unforgiving, etc. The moral law, okay? The law is not the problem. The problem is we are sinners and we have this issue inside of us that lives in us. It's called a sin nature or what Paul calls here flesh, flesh, okay? And that part of us, if we're Christians, that part of us is still here, that part of us takes commandments and then gets excited to break the very command. So for example, I know Eddie gave us a ton of good examples. Here's one that I love, okay? Let's imagine you're walking down uh, downtown and, and there's a railing and the railing has a sign that says, do not touch wet paint. And you're like, you wouldn't have even thought to touch it unless the sign was there. You'd have just probably walked right past it, not even given the, the railing a second thought, but because there was a sign that said, do not, you're like, hmm, I wonder if it is wet. You know, and, and you touch it, because the sin that is within you sees a prohibition, and you're like, I really wanna do that. This is how deceptive and powerful sin is. When it meets a do not, or a do, you must do this, sin automatically rebels. Now, we who are Christians do not only have sin living in us. That's the good news, is that we have a greater power. But for those who are not Christians, that's the only power they have, is the sin nature or the flesh. That's all they got, okay? So that's the main argument here. Is the law the problem? No, the law is not the problem. In fact, as Eddie explained last week, the law is holy, righteous, and good. It reflects God's character. It reflects what he expects. It reflects how he wants us to live. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. In fact, more deeply, the sin nature living in us is the problem. That's what Paul's arguing here. Now, you can imagine, he, he's hammering Gentiles who are not Jewish, he's hammering Jews, and then in chapter three, he just hammers everybody. All are, are sinners, no one seeks after God, there's none righteous, not even one. And, and he's just piling on the condemnation, and then he goes to say, but we need to be freed from the law as well. And you can imagine Paul's opponents being like, this guy is preaching against the law. In fact, in Acts, that's the very thing that he was accused of doing and why he got attacked and mobbed so many times because they're like, he's preaching against Moses and this place. He was at the temple. And so they mob him and riot and begin to attack him. 
And so this was a charge that was leveled at Paul all the time. And so in a sense, he's answering his critics by saying, look, I think the law is holy, righteous, and good. I'm all about the law. But the law can't save us. The law can't help us. It can only point out where we are failing and show us the standard that's so high we could never reach. That's the problem. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means, or God forbid. So Paul's saying, it's not the law that brought death to me. It's not the good law that is the problem. By no means, it was sin. Sin is the killer. Sin is the problem. Sin is what we must be on guard against and attack when we see it in our own lives, not so much in the lives of others, and that's our problem. We love to attack the sin in other people, right? It's like your wife or your husband has this huge neon sign all of their sins just blinking and you see them all, you're like, you're terrible, you know? And you, and you just, you could make a list, couldn't you? You know all their faults. And yet you, you look in the mirror at your neon light and it's like, I have no light. This is amazing. I'm pretty much Jesus. I have no flaws, no failures, nothing to repent of. I'm basically the fourth person of the Trinity. Yeah, that's, that's what you think about yourself. And this is, this is the self-righteousness. That's the very sin within you trying to deceive you. It's called self-righteousness, which is a terrible sin. Hypocrisy and self-righteousness is not good. Okay? So there, there, you, you have to know that. Okay? If you can see the flaws in everybody else and you can look at everyone and see their problems, trust me, they can see yours too. It's just that you're blind to your own junk. This is our problem. This is why community is so valuable. And this is why humble community is so valuable. So here's, here's the difference between self-righteous, arrogant community and humble community. I'm gonna slide to the self-righteous side for a second. Someone comes to you, they're being gracious, they're being kind, they're being respectful, and they're like, hey, I see something in your life. And you're like, stiff arm? Who are you to tell me anything? And you know what? I think this relationship's over. You been there? I've been there. Over here, someone comes to you, they're being gentle, they're being respectful, they're being kind, they're like, hey, I see something. And you, knowing you're a sinner, knowing you're broken, knowing you need help, humble, listen. You're quick to listen. You're slow to speak. You're slow to become angry. You're grateful to receive because you know that you are blind to your blindness, as Paul Tripp says. You know that because you're humble. See, this is what we want, Eternal City. I want humble community so that we can lovingly, respectfully, gently push on each other a little bit so that we might all improve, that we might all rise together. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Rather than, who are you to tell me? In fact, I think this relationship's over, unfriend. You know it's over when they unfriend you. You're like, no, why? <laughs> you know it's serious when it shows up on social media. By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. So this is how insidious sin is. Sin takes good and beauty and glory and gift from God and uses it as an instrument of death. This is what sin has done with the good gift of sex. This is good thing from God to be used in a context that's beautiful and glorious and sin takes it and twists it and perverts it and uses it to hurt 
many, many, many people. And there's a room full of people hurt by it in here. Okay? This is what sin does, or th- yes, this is what sin does to many good gifts of God, but in this context, the law. It's a good gift from God that shows his character, shows us the right way to go, lays out a path before us of blessing and goodness, and yet we have sin in us, and it takes this very good thing and kills us with it. Now, why would God do this? Why would God give us a law when he knows sin is going to take the law and kill us with it? Well, this is the next part. In order that, or because, sin might be shown to be sin so that you can see clearly. Remember Paul earlier said, I would not have known what coveting was unless the law had said, don't covet. In other words, we need a mirror to look at to see the dirt. That's what the law is, James says. We need the mirror so that sin would be seen as sin and through the commandment might become sinfully beyond measure. Wow. So that it might be seen as the hideous monster that it is. You look in the mirror of God's law, the perfect law of liberty, James calls it, and you see how short you fall. And you see how sinful you are and how sinful sin is. How many, um, just do an exercise with me internally, you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you have been around a genuinely humble, loving, kind, sacrificial person and you just feel guilty by standing in their presence? <laughs> they haven't hammered on you, they haven't brought out any of your faults, they haven't said anything mean, they haven't like called you out on your sin, but just their being and your being in close proximity, you just feel guilty. This is kind of like what is being shown here. The law is so holy, so righteous, so good, so pure. Us measured by it, we fall so short and we see how sinful we actually are. This is the point. Because if you don't think you need a savior, you're not gonna run to one for mercy and grace and forgiveness. Like, I don't need a savior. I'm not that bad. I mean, look at so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. They deserve hell, but not me. We do that, don't we? So verse 13, from a technical standpoint, is a transition from verse 12 into 14, because 14, the whole game changes. Okay? This is where the controversies arise, verse 14. It's like a landmine right in the middle of chapter 7. Now, here's what's going on in chapter 7. Okay? Paul is speaking about the law, he's speaking about sin, and now in 14, he's gonna transition to using personal pronouns, I and me. And the controversy of this text is, who exactly is this I? Who exactly is this me? Now, I've gone through this set of verses twice already, I've taught through it, okay? And I've always taught through it that, well, this is Paul as a Christian, clearly. In fact, I remember having a conversation with an older pastor friend. He's in his 60s. In fact, he's ready to retire soon. And he's taking a study leave to study Romans. And I'm like, wait, a study leave? What is that? Like, you get paid to be months off to just study? 
that's fantastic. That's great. Like, and so I said to him, what, what do you need to study about it? Like, what's so perplexing that you need time off to just read and study? And he said, well, Romans 7. And I'm like, what's confusing about Romans 7? And so I, I you know, I began to teach him. What's the problem with Romans? It's clearly Paul. I mean, it's clearly, he says I and me. I mean, it has to be him that he's talking about. And, and so what I've always believed in the past, friends, is that 14 all the way down to 25 is that Paul is speaking of his own experience, okay? Now, I've, I have, I counted them today, 35 plus commentaries on Romans. Anyone got me beat? I didn't think so. <laughs> now, the majority of the commentaries that I've had in the past all agreed with me. And I wasn't like opening them up prior to and saying, what do you think about Romans 7? All right, I'll buy this one, you know, let's buy this one. It was just the commentators that I had. Well, now that I'm a full-time pastor and I have a little more money and I even get a little bit of book budget from the church, I have a lot more commentaries. And so I've been able to dig this text deeper than I've ever dug before. And I'm gonna give you eight different possibilities. <laughs> quickly, quickly. Okay, so here are the possibilities before we dig into the text of what could, who could this I be? All right, here we go. Number one, Paul himself in the present. As we'll learn in chapter 16, that Paul's writing from Corinth, he's planning a visit, and so he's also planning to come and get money, missionary money to go to Spain. So it's Paul from Corinth writing to the church at Rome, and he's speaking in the present. This is me right now, Romans 7, 14 through 25. That's possibility number one. He's born again, he's a Christian. This is normal Christian experience. Number two, the possibility is Paul himself in the past before he was a Christian, before he was regenerate. He was a Pharisee, he was self-righteous, he did love the law. Uh, he believed Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. Uh, he probably had most of the whole uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy memorized along with the Psalms. Hey, he was Paul the unregenerate Pharisee. Is he talking about himself before he was a Christian, an unregenerate Christian? Is Paul talking about himself, number three, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Now, when did this happen? Well, you remember in Romans chapter nine, Jesus shows up while he's on the road to Damascus to hunt Christians. He has authority from the Sanhedrin to bring them to trial. And so Jesus shows up in glory, knocks him off his horse. Lord, who are you? I am Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so he goes blind, and for three days he is led by the hand, and he is not born again, but he has met the risen Christ in glory. And he's fasting and praying, and he's been told, there's a man named Ananias who you need to meet. And Jesus shows up to Ananias and says, there's a man named Saul who you need to meet and pray for. And so could it be that Paul is referring back to this three-day window between meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and Ananias praying for him and something like scales falling off his eyes, going back through all the Old Testament prophecies, going back through all the foreshadowings, going through biblical theology and redemptive history, if you will, in those three days, just rattling off all that he knew from being a Pharisee, connecting it to Christ. It's a possibility. Number four, the eye is simply metaphorical. Meaning, it's pointing to devout Jews 
or devout God-fearers. These would be Gentiles who have proselyted, uh, become proselyte Jews. They're, they're grafted into the Jewish religion. They love the Old Testament. They love the 39 books of the Bible, but they're not born again. They've not met Jesus Christ. So number four is the eye is metaphorical. Number five, um, Paul himself in the present, but as a divided individual, a divided individual. And, and we'll, we'll get more on that in a second, okay? I'm just gonna leave that one sit there. Basically, a regenerate person wrestling with sin. Number six, Paul describing his inner wrestle, his inner wrestle. Okay, it's just Paul internally. This is my internal wrestle. Number seven, uh, Paul describing himself as a Christian under the power of the flesh, meaning a carnal Christian. And how many of you old school, you've heard that term? You're a carnal Christian. They're just a carnal Christian. Yeah, it means you're, you're fleshy. You're, you're under the control of sin. You don't even look like a Christian. And then number eight, okay? Paul is articulating the reality of the flesh's, the, the, the indwelling sin, the sin nature, the flesh's incompatibility with God's law. We need... Okay, so he, he, this is actually what I think, okay? So I'm, I'm laying my cards on the table. I'm gonna read this, ready? I think personally that Paul is articulating the reality of the flesh's incompatibility with God's law. Uh, flesh is where sin dwells. The Christian has this part in them as well as non-Christians. It's flesh. We need more than the flesh to please God and live for him. So if you're not a Christian, all you have is flesh. If you're a Christian, you have a new spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have flesh or sin dwelling in you. Paul writes, now here's what I think, okay? I think Paul is writing from a regenerate, a born again, regenerate man's perspective, but under the power of the flesh. It's an important nuance. Let me say that again. Writing from the perspective of a regenerate person, so himself, but under the power of the flesh, not under the control and power of the Holy Spirit. So, and I'll get clearer on that as we go, okay? So just hang, hang with me for a second there. Uh, several of us men in the church are going through a book called More Than a Battle, and in the first chapter, Joe, who wrote the book, uh, lays out his view of Romans 7, and he believes that it's an unregenerate, non-Christian person, or I'm sorry, a Christian person writing, not a non-Christian. And so uh, th this person in Romans 7 is powerless to do what he wants to do because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, you'll see here, no Holy Spirit shows up in verses 14 through 25. No Holy Spirit at all. And so a friend of mine and I were talking about this and, and I said, I, I, I think it is a Christian in Romans 7. I think it's Christian. However, this is the nuance I gave, I think that it's a Christian not under the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason I think that is the case is because there is a legitimate struggle here, okay? And we're gonna open up the struggle. So imagine you're a Christian. So I think this is Paul writing about himself, but I think this is the, I am not walking by the spirit part. 
It's the flesh part. So what Paul is going to do now, here's what I'm gonna argue. Paul is going to show how Christians, if they're not walking by the Spirit, have this wrestle with sin. If you're not a Christian, you don't have any power to wrestle sin, and you probably don't even have a wrestle <laughs> with sin. You're just indulging. All right, so now, now that I've laid out um, what I think is going on here, I want to now just walk through the text with you, okay? I hope that wasn't too confusing. This text in 1 Peter here, 3, 15 to 16, a famous text about the Bible's authority, Peter uh, writes this, count the patience of our Lord as salvation because uh, he is not come back yet because he's got people who are gonna be saved and if he came back now, there'd be a bunch of people headed to hell. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now check this out. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter here, when he's reading Paul's letter to the Romans, he's like, this is a little confusing. He's reading parts of Galatians. He's reading parts of Colossians. He's like, this is a little confusing. This is hard to understand. But he says, ignorant people who are Paul's critics twist what he says and make him say something he's not, like Paul's against the law. And then interestingly, he adds, like they do the other scriptures, meaning he counts Paul's writings as scripture. So Peter's authenticating Paul as an authoritative writer of scripture. But notice that even the apostle Peter says some of these things are hard to understand, okay? Last week, this is where Eddie landed. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The promise that if we live according to the law, we'll, we'll live. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment or the law, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is good, the command is holy, righteous, and good. But what's the problem? Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, okay? The law is spiritual, meaning it is of the spirit, it deals with supernatural realities, and it deals with the spiritual inner person in addition to the outer person. But the contrast here is with flesh. Look, Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Now, this verse 14 is where everybody who thinks this can't be a Christian here. The reason this can't be a Christian is because Christians are not, as it says here, of the flesh. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now that word sold there has slavery context. And so what seems to be being said here is Paul saying the law is spiritual, but I am fleshy is the word actually. It's fleshly. I'm fleshy and I'm sold under sin. Now, if you remember back to Romans 6, I actually preached this message. There's a whole section on, on slave, slavery. He says, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to God and a slave to righteousness. You remember that? And so the argument is, look, chapter six, Paul said, we are no longer slaves to sin. 
Amen. We are now slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. So this can't be a Christian because I'm of the flesh and I'm sold under sin. So Paul can't be, it's impossible with the flow of chapter six into seven that this is a Christian because Christians are not slaves to sin and they're not in the flesh. You see the argument? It's kind of weighty. It's a good argument. It, it had me wrestling for a long time. I listened to, I don't know, six, seven sermons from Martin Lloyd-Jones on these texts. And how, how many of you have either read Lloyd-Jones on this or you've heard Lloyd-Jones on this? He goes back and forth one minute. He's saying it's a Christian and it's not a Christian. It's, you're like, Lloyd-Jones, make up your mind. And then at the end, when he, he concludes, he's like, it's neither. You know, he's like, what are you saying, brother? Like, it was just so confusing. And then he blames his confusion of his, of his people on the complexity of the text. I'm like, dude, it's not the text. You, yeah, he's, he's gone. He's not around anymore. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm wrestling with Lloyd Jones. Like, it's not them, dude. It's you. You're just going back and forth. So he, here's what I think is going on. Ready? I'm going to try to be as clear as possible here. Here's why I think, despite the Roman six slavery argument, which is powerful. Here's why I think this is a Christian and this is Paul writing about himself in a unique context. The part that is flesh is the part that is sold under sin. What did, what, what did you just say? The part of us friends that is still flesh, or if you like the NIV, the part of you that is the sin nature is absolutely 100% sold to sin, slave to sin. But you know what? For the Christian, we have more than just flesh. And that's what he begins to unpack in verses 15 through 25. And so what it looks like here is the law is definitely spiritual. It's holy, righteous, good. It's from God. It points to God's character. It points to how we should live. But we, in our flesh or in our sin nature, are sold under sin. And so let me make a clear distinction here. You, friend, as a regenerate Christian, you're born again, you're believing in Jesus, there's new life in you, you have another part of you that is sinful, that is temptable, that is attracted to evil, that is rude, that does lie, that does defend, that is not patient, amen? You, you know that part, the easily angered, quick to speak, slow to listen, that, that part of you. That part is sold under sin. And the non-Christian, that's all they have. They have nothing else. There's no power but flesh. And that part is sold under sin. This is why all of the previous chapters are absolutely true. Without the new birth, without the Holy Spirit, we have nothing. There's no power. And so the part that's sold under sin is the flesh. And now he unpacks verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand my own actions. Now, here's what Paul begins to do here. He starts to talk about the I in different senses. Okay? Now, you have more than one you inside of you, right? You begin to talk to yourself and, and we understand, okay, there's more than one me here because I'm having a conversation with myself. Yeah, I see heads shaking. We understand what, what I'm saying here. And so Paul now unpacks the I that is sinful and then the I that is the whole person that can identify the sinful part of him. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? You, you know that there's a part of you inside that hates sin, that hates how quick you get angry, that hates how rude you are, that hates how judgmental you are. You can identify that part of you, and if you could get rid of it, you would, right? The whole of you hates this part of you. That's Paul's experience, and that's what he's saying here. For I do not understand my own actions. The whole of me doesn't understand the part of me that acts according to the flesh. For I, the whole of me, does not do what I want. Okay, or I'm sorry, I reversed that. The part of me that is sinful does not do what the whole of me wants to do. For I do not do what I want. That's the only way that makes sense. There's a part of Paul that does not want to sin, but then there's a part of him that does sin, and the part that doesn't want to can look at that part and say, this is not good. I don't want this, I don't like this. So the part of him that is of flesh is sold under sin. It is a slave to sin, and he recognizes it, and he wants it to be gone. So he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So the I here, the I do is the part that's sinful. The whole of him hates it. I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, that's the whole him and the whole him. If I do the thing I don't want to do, then I agree with the law that it's good. Okay, here's what he's saying here. I see that I shouldn't be impatient, but man, am I impatient, and I hate it. Like, why can't I just wait at the red light? Why do I gotta blow through stop signs? Why do I gotta do 75 and a 25? Why can't I wait at the line in the grocery store? Why am I like, oh, there's one less person way over there, and you run, you, you know, you do a lap in Walmart to get to the, to the line that's just a tiny bit shorter. Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're so impatient. And, and when it's pointed out to you, you see the impatience. You see the shortness that you exhibit with others. You're like, I don't want to be like this. And so you agree when the law says, in the form of 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. You see that, okay, I am not acting loving here when I'm impatient with people. And man, I'm impatient all the time. And if the second greatest commandment is to love my neighbor as myself, then I'm in sin constantly every time I'm impatient with someone. And so what you're doing is you're agreeing that the law is good, but that you are a problem. But that you can recognize that you are a problem and you don't want that problem says that the whole of you has a problem with a part of you. And Jesus has a simple solution. Just start cutting body parts off, right? You just gouge out an eye, you chop off a hand, you're gonna be all right, man. Pretty soon you're a torso, you'll be all right. It's hyperbole to say we do need to be aggressive with our sin, but we will continue to sin. This is the frustration of the text here. And this is, so I've always taken this text just experientially. It's like, well, this is the normal Christian life, man. You know, like, haven't you experienced exactly what Paul's saying? 
And the answer is yes, but I wasn't able to be as nuanced with the understanding here that there's a part of us that's flesh that is absolutely 100% sold to sin and sold out to sin. And so because I already quoted Lloyd-Jones, I'll quote him again. Lloyd-Jones would say something like this. If you ever have any desire or inclination to pray, you know that that is the Holy Spirit because your flesh would never want to pray. It would never push you to pray. That's how we can distinguish the two things here. The flesh is going to push you away from God, never towards him. Always, because it's sold under sin. It's attracted to sin. It hates God, it hates righteousness, and it lives in you. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) This is the struggle of the text. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 17 is huge. The problem is, friends, you have sin living in you like a parasite. It's inoperable. You can't get it out. Do you know how you can get it out? You have to die. It's the only way. And so until you die, you will have this sin living inside of you. You go to the bathroom, sin goes to the bathroom with you. You go to get changed, sin's in the dressing room with you. You go get a burrito at Moe's, guess who's getting a burrito? Your sin. It just follows you everywhere you go. You have this part of you that is evil and wicked and opposed to God and opposed to the newness that's inside of you, and you can't escape it. Now, Romans 7, thankfully, is not the end of the story because once we get into Romans 8, guess who shows up? The Holy Spirit. But we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're still in Romans 7, okay? So there is a logical flow to the text, and right now we're in the bad part of Romans 7. And so right now we have this sin living in us. It's a problem. For I know, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Okay, now this is, this is one of the strongest places where I say, this has to be a Christian here. There's nothing good that dwells in me. Qualification, that is, that is in my flesh. Sound like rain? Someone have their sleepy app on really loud? What's going on here is there's nothing good that lives in you, Christian, that is in your flesh, in your sin nature. Now, now if this was Paul the non-Christian, why would he qualify that? That's, I have no idea why he would say that. So he's alluding to the new life that the Spirit produces. He's alluding to the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't come out and say it yet because he's going to write chapter 8. And so he says, there's nothing good that dwells in me, kind of, that is in my flesh, the part that's sold under sin, the part that is obedient to sin and attracted to evil. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. Now, the desire to do what is right can come in two ways. One, it can come from an external pressure of the law because you're a Pharisee, because you're religious. And so you want to be religious for probably a bad motive. You want to look good to others like the Pharisees, right? You hypocrites. 
You know, you make loud prayers in the streets. You, you make your prayer tassels long. You, you tithe your spices. And inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. You're dead spiritually on the inside, but outwardly, you put on this big show. You love to be called teacher and rabbi, titles of honor. You just love the outwardness of it. It's a good motive for, for wanting to do what is right. But I think Paul here having a desire to do what is right is spirit developed and new Paul inside. Do you know that Ephesians talks about an old man and a new man? And we're to put off that old man constantly and put on the new self created after Christ. This is that Ephesians new self that desires to do good. Do we experientially understand this. We have a part of us that does want to please God, that does not want to be rude or impatient or angry or judgmental. But not the ability to carry it out. So he says he has a desire, but he doesn't have the power. I need power to do this. Now, this is why I said earlier that this is Paul, as a regenerated, regenerated man, writing from the perspective of being under the power of the flesh, not under the power of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Because he can't find the power to overcome the flesh even though he has a desire. But he will find the power at the end of the chapter. Okay? But right now, he doesn't have the power. Why? Because it's only flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me. So, again, we could go through all the eyes, but we won't. If I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. So he's separating himself from the sin living in him, and he's saying the true me, the new me, the part that the Holy Spirit has breathed life into, that part of me does not want to sin. So it's not the real new me. It's the sin that dwells in me. That's the problem. The problem is the sin living in me. Now, there are, there are many texts we could go to to see that this is not the only place in the Bible uh, that this is spoken of. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul addresses the Corinthians as fleshy. Look, he says, but I, brothers, it's neutral, it's not gender specific, uh, brothers, sisters, could not address you as spiritual people. Remember, Paul says the law is spiritual, but I am fleshy, I am of the flesh. But as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. So it is possible in Paul, specifically in the Corinthian context, I mean, if you know about the Corinthian church, they were a mess, and they were not living according to the Spirit. They were living in the flesh. Here, Paul calls them people of the flesh. And he says, you are Christians, though, you're just very immature Christians. You're, you're, you're very young in the faith. Now, let's ask a question here. How many of you, when you were brand new Christians, like you thought you were killing it? 
You're like, man, I quit, and you, and you start naming the big things. You're like, man, I don't rob Macy's anymore, right? And I don't carry around a knife and look for people to stab anymore. I don't, you know, gouge tires when I'm mad at someone in the parking lot. Like, I stopped doing all those big things, right? And you think you're killing it for Christ. And then, like, two years go past, and you realize, man, I am a terrible person. And then, you know, four years comes by. And you're like, man, I'm worse than I thought I was. And then 10 years comes by as a Christian. You're like, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Yet you're, you're actually getting better and better and better. But you're realizing internally you are a mess. See, when you're, when you're a brand new Christian, God is so kind to you that he doesn't reveal all of your sin all at once. He deals with things a little bit at a time. He says, all right, now we're going to work on this. And 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 he doesn't say, you need to get it all right, right now. No, God is actually interested in slow growth. Slow, overtime, progress, fall down, get back up, dust yourself off, try again, repent, repent, repent again. This is Martin Luther. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Now, interestingly, Paul, earlier in Romans 7, talks about inward sins, coveting. Remember? I would not have known what coveting was if the Lord said, do not covet. So he's talking about inner realities, I mean, everyone can tell if you're, you know, cursing everyone out and threatening everybody. I mean, we can see that. And I'm like, that's a problem. If you're like this in church, how are you in traffic? You know, it's like, dang, we, you can't even keep it together in here. We love you. I mean, we want you here. But, but if you're a coveter, you know, you could just secretly be jealous and coveting everybody's everything. And we would never know, possibly, until you opened your mouth and told us. And so there's all kind of inward battles that come as you mature. You guys know what I'm talking about? Inward battles. That as you grow, you're like, I am not holy. I am not righteous. There's still a part of me that desires evil and is attracted to it that I have to actively fight against. The older I get as a Christian, the more I see it. Where before, I didn't even realize it was there. I thought I was doing pretty good. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. I love, I love this. Now, I have to bring in the Holy Spirit because we're, we're done here. We're at the end, and I don't want to leave us in despair. So Paul says to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit. See the Holy Spirit there, capital S? Walk by the Spirit, and something will happen. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, in Romans 7, again, we did not see any spirit it was just, I want to do this thing, but I can't accomplish it because I don't have the power to do it. But here, if we walk by the power of the Spirit, look, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what do we need to learn to do, friends? As Christians, we need to learn to tap in to the ability or the power. You, in and of yourself, Minus the Holy Spirit, even as a Christian, you can go nowhere. You can do nothing. This is what Jesus said, John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. And so if, 
If we're going to grow, if we're going to jump ahead to Romans 8, 13, if we're going to kill sin by the Spirit, we need the Spirit. We need to tap into the power. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Doesn't that sound like a very short version of what we just read? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Right? The law is spiritual. I am of flesh. If I am led by the Spirit, I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think what that means is when you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't need an external code to press on you and tell you what you should and shouldn't do. The Spirit always leads you in the way of righteousness. Always. And if we were able to walk by the Spirit all the time, we wouldn't even need commandments. And I think this is what heaven's going to be like. The he- when we go into heaven, right, and heaven comes down to earth, you know, you got good eschatology, you know this cleansing of earth, we're actually physical, we're on earth. Heaven is not going to be filled with giant building-sized lists of do's and do-nots. Right? The new Jerusalem is not going to be not just 10 commandments, but 10,000 commandments, you know, and we're looking, we're like trying to do good. You don't need a commandment because we are going to be so full of the Holy Spirit and have no flesh. Nothing in us will be attracted to evil. No power to sin, only power not to sin. Where we know something of the middle now, we know a little bit about the power not to sin, don't you? I hope you do. I hope you've won a few temptations. Encourage me, tell me you've won a few, come on. All right, you've won a few, excellent, good. That's what we want more of, more victory. Right, so here's what I want to challenge you to do, okay? And this is hard because we're prideful, arrogant Christians. Okay, this is hard to do. When you see somebody acting godly, would you encourage them? Did you know that later in Romans, I think it's chapter 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor? In other words, if you want to compete, you want to go at each other's throats, how about go at it in this, outdo one another in showing honor? Let's see that kind of competition. But see, the reason we don't like to compliment others is because we then feel lesser. It's like, if I compliment you, I shrink a little, and I want to look taller than you. <laughs> All the tall people are like, man, I hit my head on everything. I need to shrink just a little bit. All my tall people are out there like, yeah, I could lose a couple inches. You have to duck through hallways. You bang your head off low-lying lights. It's terrible. You think it's awesome. It's not. But the idea is we, we want to look bigger than others. We want to seem larger than we are. You know what that's called? Inflated, puffed up. You're just full of air. Right? We, we all need to shrink down to our real self and outdo one another in showing honor. And so that means if your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your kids, whoever does something that matches a godly do in the Bible, would you tell them, hey, I saw that. I want to encourage you. Man, could you imagine a whole church of people who were committed to outdoing one another and showing honor? That would be awesome. And I, and I want to submit to you, and I'm, I'm not preaching that sermon because we're not there yet, but I'll give you a preview right now. Encouragement is far more powerful than rebuke. Encouragement is far more power than finger in your face screaming you down. Because you know what that does? That causes the flesh to rise up. It's like, oh, really? 
let's go. <laughs> but encouragement actually has power to change and transform. I'll do one another and showing on. How do we encourage? We encourage by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. So this is kind of a strange place to end, but we are going to end here. And here's my encouragement. Romans 8.12 says this. I think I have it here. We'll end on this text. So then, brothers, brothers and sisters, we are not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. We don't, we're not slaves to the flesh only, okay? Notice we jumped out of Romans 7. We're in 8. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you'll live. Notice the Spirit is the one who puts to death the deeds of the body. Now, in Romans 7, there's nothing good that lives in me that is in my flesh. But see, we don't only have the flesh, we have the Spirit. And so I'm going to pray for us that the Holy Spirit is more real to us, that the Holy Spirit is alive to us, and that we can walk by his strength, walk by his power, and not continually give in to that sinful part of us. Is that okay if I pray for you? I pray for myself too. Father, I pray that you would give us grace, give us help, give us strength. Father, we know that we are weak. We know that we are incapable without your help of doing what we know to be right, what we would have others do unto us. Father, we thank you that we are not left to ourselves. We are not left in our inability. We are not left powerless. You've given us your very spirit. Father, I ask that we all would have the power of your Holy Spirit to love, to be patient, to be kind, to not be envious, to not boast, to not be rude, to not be self-seeking, to believe all things, endure all things, and to hope. Father, would you fill us with your spirit, I pray. Would we have a hunger and a desire to meet you in prayer, a hunger and a desire to meet you through your word, a hunger and a desire to be with others of like mind so that we might encourage and build one another up. I pray that, Father, we would not be slaves to the flesh or the indwelling sin, the part of us that does not want to obey God, that does not want to walk after his will. Give us grace to walk by the power of the Spirit. Pray that as we remember Jesus, Father, that you would encourage our hearts. Pray that we would be reminded again that we are free and it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Pray that you would give us grace now in these moments as we close. Be glorified in our singing. And may we be encouraged as we remember the Lord's death until he's come. he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. And let me encourage you, friends, that we have the Spirit. And the Spirit shows up most powerfully when we are seeking to fight against our sin. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect. 
It doesn't mean we'll have continuous victory, but to live a constant, defeated Christian life is not the whole story. We don't live the Christian life in Romans 7. We live the Christian life in Romans 8. 